Okay, I want to invite you to, uh, to turn in your, in your Bible to John 20. Um, and before you do that, uh, we're going to release the kids to the classes. Yay, yay, you guys released your classes. If you are parents and this is your first time here and you want to accompany your child to the class, you are more than welcome to do so. And uh, you, you can come back into, into the service. So, um, yay, Mr. Nick is taking everybody back there. Happy group. All right, John chapter 20, 19 through 31. Every time we go to Israel, one of our favorite things to do is to go to a place called the Garden Tomb. The Garden Tomb, we don't know if this is exactly the place where Jesus died and was raised, but the Garden Tomb has all sorts of really cool facets to it. For instance, one of the things in the Garden Tomb is a rocky outcropping that literally looks like the place of the skull. Could this be Golgotha? Maybe, maybe. Um, it's a pretty, pretty impressive place because you see it and think, ah, it looks like a skull. It also features a, a wonderful garden, um, and uh, that garden has all sorts of features in it, like a wine press. And there is a tomb, and uh, that tomb has a gaping entrance there, and it is an empty tomb, no body in that tomb. And one of the things I love about going there is I love being in that tomb and reflecting on the dead body of Jesus and then thinking about Jesus' eyes opening up and Jesus walking out in newness of life. I think about that because that's my position. I am a person who is identified with Christ and I have the capacity to walk in newness of life. The theological term for this is union with Christ. And union with Christ has some wonderful facets to it. Um, when Jesus was on the cross, God the Father regards you as having been there with him. When Jesus died, God the Father regards you as having died. When Jesus was buried, God regards you as having been buried. When Jesus uh, rose and ascended, God regards you as having risen and ascended. In other words, everything that happened to Jesus, God the Father regards all those things as having happened to you. You are united with Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and you're even seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So that means that I can walk in newness of resurrection life. But how, how am I going to do that? How are the disciples going to learn how to do that? Well, what Jesus does is Jesus teaches them in his 40 days of resurrection appearances. Well, I want to talk about that this morning. How did they learn how to walk in newness of life? How do we learn how to walk in newness of life? So I'm going to start by telling the story, and then we can, we can look at um, what Jesus, how Jesus taught them, and we'll close with some takeaways. But the story begins with Jesus' resurrection. Uh, with his resurrection story begins with the hopelessness of the grave. I want to take you back to... Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. It's about 3.30 in the afternoon. Sabbath is coming. Night is beginning to fall. And somebody has to take that body off the cross. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come to Pilate, and Pilate grants them permission to remove the body. They, they take the nails out of the hands and the feet. They carry the body to the place of Joseph's tomb, they anoint the body very quickly with the spices. They wrap the shroud around the body and place that into the tomb. 
And then in an act, I think, of sadness, Joseph and Nicodemus took that large stone rock and they, they rolled it in place in front of the tomb. Roman soldiers showed up and they had a, they had a cord that they wrapped around the opening of where that rock was and they embedded the ends of that cord in clay. And they impressed the seal of Rome in that clay. And from, from then, for the next 36 hours, that tomb is under the authority of Rome. And nobody but nobody is going to mess with that tomb. Fast forward 36 hours. While the people of Jerusalem are still asleep in their beds, a massive earthquake rumbles through that area. Matthew calls it a large earthquake. I don't know how, what the Richter scale was. Maybe it was 6.1, 6.5. Not sure. But that earthquake ripped the stone off the entry of the tomb and Jesus rises. Now, let me put the pause button on the story for just a second. Because what I want to say about, about his rising is that this was not just something that one member of the Trinity did. This was something that all three were involved with. For instance, Jesus raised himself. John 10, 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus. Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. He boldly predicts this in John 2.19. Jesus on the Temple Mount says, destroy this temple, and guess what? In three days... I'm going to raise it up again. And he was talking about his body. So Jesus is involved in raising himself up. But we also see that God the Father has a role. Galatians 1.1, Paul says, I'm an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Who raised Jesus? Jesus raised Jesus and God the Father raised Jesus. Who else raised Jesus? Well, you got it, the Spirit. Romans 8, 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit and dwells you. The resurrection was an activity of the triune God. Now, why is it so important? It's important because this act of resurrection was an act of love, an amazing astonishing act of love. So whereas we see the sadness of Joseph and Arimathea and Nicodemus putting that stone in place, we see the sadness. We see the sadness of the women who are, who are looking on. What we see is that the triune God is going to engineer an astonishing act of love that really is a precursor to the act of love that we benefit from. Because every one of us is going to pass away. Every one of us is going to be laid in a coffin, laid in the earth. And our resurrection is a re resurrection that is going to be engineered by the love of the triune God has, who has called us into fellowship with himself. And when we think about the, about the empty tomb, we have to think about this as being a place where love broke through in a really big way. Now let's get back to, to the story.
Um, I want you to imagine the grave while the earthquake is in process. Imagine the soldiers, they're, they're standing at attention. They're going to guard this tomb with their lives. The earthquake comes. They brace themselves against the rumbling of the earthquake. They see the stone blow, apart, blow away from the entrance of the cave. They turn around. They see the gaping hole. They see movement inside that, that hole. They see movement and then there's the Lord Jesus whose eyes flutter open. He tears away the head covering. He pulls away the shroud. He sits up. He stands on resurrected legs and he walks out of that grave and the soldiers freak out and they, they run back into the city. Now, best I can tell, the route that they take was the exact same route that Jesus took when he went from the Antonio Fortress to Calvary. Now these soldiers are going back on that same, that same route from Calvary back to the Antonio Fortress to report what just happened. So I think about the, the irony of this. Jesus walks that path on Friday in weakness, humility, and shame. And now these proud soldiers, the Navy SEALs of the ancient world, they, they run that same path in weakness, humility, and shame. The resurrection is the great reversal of fortune. And it's awesome to see what God does. With Jesus out of the grave, <clears throat> um, the angels can now make an announcement to Jesus' most committed female follower, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is amazing. She's amazing. I talked a lot about her last week. Jesus' most famous female follower. Everybody else leaves the scene of the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene pokes her head in. What does she see? Two angels. She sees an angel at the place where his head would have been. She sees an angel at the place where his feet would have been. And these angels are making an announcement. And it's a very important announcement. And it's an announcement filled with symbolism. Because in the tabernacle and temple, there was an, a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. There's a photo of a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had a top on it called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place where the high priest would, would do the, the Day of Atonement. He would sprinkle the blood onto the mercy seat for the, to atone for the sins of the nation. Now, these angels are, are bowing not toward each other. What they're doing is they're bowing toward the invisible presence of God represented in the glory cloud. And basically what these two angels who are, who are announcing the empty tomb are doing symbolically is they're saying Jesus is the mercy seat. Paul says that in Romans Chapter 3, verse 25. Jesus is the mercy seat. His atoning sacrifice has taken care of the sins of the world. The sins of the world have been taken care of. They have been propitiated. God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. They're also saying that just like the Shekinah glory cloud signaled the invisible presence of God, the presence of Jesus is all around. And sure enough, Mary's hearing all this amazed. She looks back, and there's Jesus. And she realizes that he's, that he's here. This is, a, this is an astonishing set of events that is rippling with the supernatural. Now miracles begin to multiply. Matthew 27, 51, the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I have no idea how all that transpired. That verse invites 
mystery. But I can tell you this, the city of Jerusalem was in turmoil because they're thinking, okay, the temple curtain tore in two on Friday. Now it looks like we got people who are dead people who are walking around Jerusalem on Sunday. And we have centurions who've come to Christ and there are reports of an empty tomb. The place was in chaos on Sunday. It was crazy what was going on. Getting back to the disciples, now the disciples have got to figure out what they're going to do with the resurrection. Jesus promised the resurrection. He prophesied the resurrection. How are the disciples going to live in the context of the resurrection? Well, in John 20, 19-31, Jesus starts his 40-day mission. And his 40-day mission is to train his disciples to live in his supernatural presence. It's a wonderful mission. It's a mission that applied to them and it applies to us in some really powerful ways. So let's look at, at this mission. John prevent, pre presents four pictures describing what it means to live in newness of life. Four pictures. Picture number one is um, contained in 19 through 21. He takes us from anxiety to peace. Verse 19, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. I want you to imagine that it's Resurrection Sunday. It's the first Easter Sunday. It's evening. Ten of the now 11 disciples are gathered in the upper room. It's the same upper room that they probably celebrated the Lord's Supper in. It's the same upper room that they will probably encounter Pentecost in. This was a very special place. But these guys are afraid. Uh, they're specifically, Matthew says they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Like the Jewish leaders are going to come after the disciples. What have you done? And if the Jewish leaders get a hold of them, you know the Roman leaders are going to get a hold of them as well. They're afraid. They're terrified. What in the world is happening? There have been reports that morning of the resurrection. They saw the empty tomb. Two disciples on the Emmaus Road, they saw the resurrected Jesus. So, like, there are reports of this, but they are afraid. Doors are locked. And um, so, Jesus shows up behind locked doors. Miraculously, supernaturally, shows up. Shows up physically in his resurrection body. And what's the first thing he says? Peace. Peace. Now, I think this peace that he's talking about, even though the Greek word is used in the New Testament, is really the Hebrew idea of peace. The Hebrew idea being well-being, shalom, welfare, prosperity, goodness. It's the idea of enjoying divine, divine favor. He's saying peace, peace, peace be with you guys. Now, the reason why we can have peace is because Jesus engineered an objective peace on the cross. Enmity between humans and God was taken care of through Jesus' death on the cross. That's objective peace. There's no more, no more hostility, no, no more enmity between you and God. But there's also a subjective peace, and that subjective peace is the enjoyment of divine favor. He moves them from anxiety to peace. 
Now, we need this piece. I, I, I want to take you to, um, this is the uh, Anxiety and Depression Association of America. They claim on their website that anxiety disorders are the most common form of mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults age 18 or older. That's, that's a significant problem. Now, they are the website that promotes their work. That's a big deal. So just this past week, an article came out in the New York Times, Americans are among the most stressed people in the world, poll finds. The poll was a Gallup poll, and they interviewed people all across the world. Over 150,000 people were included in this poll. And they said that Americans, if they're not at the top, they're near the top of the most stressed out, anxiety-ridden people on the, in the entire globe. Here, here we're the most prosperous. We have lots of wealth. Lots of, we have lots of of things available to us, smartphones to ease our stress, and we're the most stressed people on the planet. So moving from anxiety to peace is something you should be interested in, because I would imagine everybody in here at some level has dealt with their share of anxiety. Maybe it's general anxiety disorder issues, or maybe it's situational anxiety, and you're asking the question, how does the resurrection Christ address my problems with anxiety? What Jesus says to you is, I give you peace. You have peace with God. You're no longer at enmity with God. He's, no, he's not mad at you. You can, you can think that way after you, after you commit a sin. You think, oh, God's probably mad at me. He's got to cool off for a couple of days. You know, I can't go to him. I can't pray to him because I, he's really, really ticked off. And the truth is, God the Father already got mad at Jesus for that sin you just committed. You are no longer at odds with God. And therefore, Jesus can minister to you his supernatural peace as a result of his resurrection. And I will tell you that God is highly glorified when you choose to live in that peace. It's a discipline. Jesus pronounces that peace, but I have to choose to live moment by moment in that peace that was already established by the Son of God. So now we, we move to uh, the second snapshot. And the, se the second snapshot of newness of life is that newness of resurrection life means you go from little power to much power. Little power to much, much power. I wonder if you, can, if you can envision the bewilderment of the disciples at this point. This is all so new. You know, it's like we have the scriptures. We have a category for this. They had no category for this. This is all very, very new to them. So Jesus shows them his hands and his side, and they're convinced, and they're excited, and they're overjoyed. So in verse 21, he says again, peace. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed upon them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of people read, read that and they go, that's, that's kind of weird. Like, like what, what's, what's going on with that? Well, I want you to remember what happened in Genesis chapter 2. God makes Adam and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And Adam became a living being. That's the first Adam. Now, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, goes to the disciples, and he does the same thing, channeling, you know, this idea from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. He breathes upon them, not physical life, but spiritual life, so that now, now they have the life of God 
in and around them. Pentecost hasn't come yet. The fullness of the Spirit is going to come 40 days later. But now they've got the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is working inside their life, and they're going from a little power now to much power. First birth, you know, came in Genesis 2, verse 7. Now the new birth, the new creation comes now. But notice that it's power with a purpose. You know, if you have power and no purpose, that's a dangerous thing. I know people who, for some reason, they got power and no purpose, and they use that power, I should say, they abuse that power in ways that are tragic. Jesus gives them power with purpose, and their purpose is that they would share the gospel. As the Father sent me to declare good news, so now I am descending you to declare good news. Purpose, power that comes with purpose, the purpose to transform a life, the purpose to make people different, the purpose to help people grow. And when you have that kind of purpose, you can function as a believer priest. And when somebody comes to Christ, you can say, look, on the authority of God's word, I can declare to you, your sins are forgiven. What authority do you have to say that? God's word. And I'm a believer priest. And I can make declarations as a believer priest. So Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from many, it is withheld. In other words, he's saying, you have the power to share the gospel, lead people to Christ, and then be a believer priest declaring their newfound position in the Lord. That's power. That's, that's amazing power. You know, WebM, WebMD talked about major external factors of anxiety, and one of them was not having purpose. It talked about the fact that people who don't have purpose, they find it hard to get up and go to their job. They find it hard to get up and take care of their family. You know, in Christ, you've been given power of the Holy Spirit with purpose to change people's lives. And then we see a third snapshot. Third snapshot is he takes us from doubt to faith. And this has to do with Thomas. You know, we called Thomas Doubting Thomas because of the story that we're about to see here. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again. Now, remember, Thomas was not there that first time Jesus appeared on Easter Sunday evening. Wasn't there. And the disciples apparently reported to Thomas, hey, we saw the Lord. And Thomas said, look, I, I am not going to believe you guys. Maybe Thomas had been hurt in the past. Maybe Thomas had encountered disappointments in the past. And he's not going to let himself be hurt again. He says, look, I'm not going to believe you guys unless I see the nail prints in his hand and the hole in his side. I am no way am I going to believe you guys. I'm not going to believe you guys. He does not want, not want to get hurt again. And so Jesus shows up. And I can imagine, you know, Peter uh, locking the doors, not because he's afraid, but because he wants to prove to Thomas something amazing has taken place. Just imagine, maybe with a little sense of humor, you know, Peter, like, smiling and winking to the rest of the disciples. Hey, guys, we're locking the door, right? Because when Jesus shows up, like, he'll know this is supernatural. Boom, lock the door. And sure enough, Jesus, Jesus shows up. Jesus holds out his hands and says, Thomas, Thomas, look, look right here. Put your hand in the hole here. Look, you know, here, put, put your hand in the hole, right? I mean, you wonder if Jesus had a, like a Velcro robe on here, you know, where he could cut kind of zoop like this, and right here, right here. Just put it, put it right here. Like, you know, and, and, and there's a, two miracles here. There's the miracle of his appearing, but there's also the miracle of, Tom, of Jesus reading Thomas's mind. Because Jesus 
knows the doubts that Thomas had. He knows the pain and the angst Thomas is experiencing. He's read his mind so that he can minister grace to Thomas in the midst of Thomas's pain and weakness. Two miracles show up. And so what does Thomas do when this happens? Thomas gets, I imagine, down on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. He's worshiping because he recognizes that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, worshiping the resurrected Christ. Here's Jesus' instruction to us, though. Um, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I, I will tell you that all the rest of the disciples are in this very same category. They're struggling with believing without seeing. What Jesus is saying, guys, I need to, I need to set up a new paradigm for you. And the new paradigm is that you can encounter my invisible spiritual presence all the time. And that's true for you. I say this a lot of grace, but right now in the physical space next to you, the resurrected Jesus is present. Around you right now, there's physical space and there is spiritual space. And the resurrected Christ is present in the spiritual space around you. It's called abiding. He abides with you. His metaphorical yoke is on, is on you, it's on him, so that Jesus can teach you in real time how to walk. So the idea is, it's cool when he shows up physically, that's awesome, but it's better that you, as a disciple, learn to live in his invisible supernatural presence all the time. That's the vision, that's the goal. It's been the goal from the very beginning, because you, you remember that God the Father used to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. God, God loves, he loves to spend time with his people. He loves to hang out with his people. You know, sometimes people used to, used to say, hey, do you want to hang out? I would feel pressure, like, because I'm a very purpose-driven kind of person. Hey, you want to hang out? Uh, yeah, we, well, what, 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 are you, what are we going to do? Uh, I, I, yeah, uh, to, to do what? I'm, I'm so purpose-driven, it's really hard for me to hang out. But God loves to hang out with his people. And what God does is he takes us from doubt to faith as we learn to live in his invisible presence. I've had some people tell me, you know, I, I pray, I pray, I pray. My prayers like go up and they, and they hit the ceiling and it's like God's not there. And the thing that I say to people is, look, you, you have to reckon that the invisible presence of God is there. In him, we live and move and have our being. He is here. So it's not a matter of you learning to feel him. It's a matter of you reckoning his invisible spiritual presence all around you and learning to flow into that presence so that you encounter him. From time to time, you'll encounter him more, but there may be times where you don't necessarily feel him, but you know he's there because that's what the word said. That's what it says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed in his invisible spiritual presence that is around you all the time, moving into, into your life for fellowship. And that leads us then um, to a principle that I think is important. Jesus' blessing comes when we live and encounter his invisible presence. That's what he's saying. 
All right, now the fourth snapshot. He takes us from death to life. Now John finishes the main body of his gospel. The, pro, the epilogue comes in the next chapter, chapter 21. He's done with the main um, part, of his, part of his gospel. And here's what he says. Now Jesus did many other th- signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing may have life in his name. Now what does life mean? He's not simply referring to heaven. As important as that is, as revolutionary as that is, he's not simply referring to that. He's referring to a fullness of life that occurs now. John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. These have been written that you may have life, that kind of life. It's an eternal life that's begun now. Heaven is breaking into your eternal life right now. And someday you will break into heaven after you die. But it's a quality of life where the supernatural God is feeding into your humanity, preparing you for the future. That's the kind of life that he wants you to have. And so people who are living in the fullness of resurrection life are encountering that more and more a fullness of life. God, thank you. You're good to me. I'm walking in your goodness. We were in Cuba a number of years ago, and I met the most joyful people I had had maybe not ever met, but among the top handful that I had ever met. They had nothing. Their, Their home was about the size of this part of the stage. It was clean, but they were just as poor as they could possibly be. They radiated the joy of the Lord. And they said to me when, when I left, they, they said, next time you come to Cuba, we want you to stay in our house. Everything we have is yours. And I, I said, oh, th- thank you very much. No, no, you, you don't understand. We want you to stay in our house. Everything we have is yours. And, I, and I'm thinking, okay, their level of gratitude exceeded my level of gratitude, and I have way more than they have, Okay. So living in fullness of life is is encountering that sense of God's abundant presence and flowing flowing with that. And that leads me to the big idea of this story. The big idea is this. Living in newness of life means encountering progressive, well-rounded abundance here and anticipation of eternal abundance there. Now, I put well-rounded in there because... Sometimes we can say, God, I'm doing really great, but this area is so frustrating, and I don't like what you're doing in this area. I don't like what's happening in this area. What I'm saying is that even in areas that are painful and difficult, you reckon the fact that God is at work in that trial to bring you transformation. And therefore, that trial is something that in God's economy ends up being good. It's not that the trial is good, but what he brings out of the trial is good. So, Living a newness of life means encountering progressive, well-rounded abundance here in anticipation of eternal abundance there. You're moving from anxiety to peace, from little power to much power, from doubt to faith, from death to life. You know, um, this is very different from the world's concept of abundance. Um, every year around this time, there are articles about Silicon Valley and their longevity studies. So here's one, how Silicon Valley plans to live forever. Billionaires are spending fortunes on longevity technology. 
And the idea is I want to extend my lifespan. The one problem is that people who are alive right now and over the age of 50, they're predicting won't have the technological advances to live forever, so sorry, you're not going to make it. But people who are in their 20s and 30s, oh, those technological advances will be great. You will make it. You'll live maybe not forever, but like to 125 or 250 or whatever. So the more they do this study, the more people go, I don't know. And so there's an article that came out this week called, Is Silicon Valley's Quest for Immortality a Fate Worse Than Death? And the answer was, probably. Because they're talking about you being able to download your soul and upload it to the internet. And then you could exist on the internet. Wow. How cool would that be? These guys are saying, uh, that might be a fate worse than death. The biblical vision is completely different than that because the idea is the power of heaven breaks into my life now in anticipation for my eternal life then and now I get the best of both worlds. The best of this life is heaven breaking into my life. And the best of the next life is me being with Jesus forever. That's the vision. You can live in, in fullness of life. So let me close with some, some takeaways. Um, how do we step out and walk in newness of life? Well, takeaway number one is start with your weakness. I, I love the fact that we see pictures of weakness here. Weakness and fear in this passage precede confidence and power. So we see the, the disciples cowering behind locked doors. Weakness, fear. We see Thomas angrily withdrawing. Again, weakness and fear. We see the disciples lacking peace, weakness and fear. And Jesus starts with where they actually are. When Jesus shows up in that room behind locked doors, he doesn't say, oh, you guys, I'm so disappointed with you. Here, I told you about peace, and I taught you all these things in the, in the upper room, and you have not applied any of these things. I am super, super disappointed with you, and I'm thinking about maybe choosing somebody else to be my disciples. That didn't happen. He starts with where they actually are, fearful, peace-lacking disciples. I love that. Because that's, that's, that's how we learn to grow. We take our fears and our anxieties and our doubts and we say, God, here's this, this little awkward bundle of junk and I'm, I'm giving this to you and will you please make sense out of it and transform me? And he does that. That's how, that's how good he is. That's how kind and, and gracious he is. So if your issue is fear, tell him, Jesus, I'm, I'm really afraid. Jesus, I've got a problem with anxiety. If your issue is disappointment, tell him, Lord, I'm, I'm just so disappointed. My life is not turning out the way I thought it would. I don't know what to do with that. If your issue is doubt, tell him, Jesus, I face these huge struggles, and I just, I just struggle with doubt. Lord, help me, help me figure this out. And he'll do it. But you start, you, you got to start with where you are, not, not pretend that you're in some place different. Then a second thing is, um, second takeaway is realize that resurrection life takes root in community. 
You know, I love the fact that in these resurrection appearances, there's always, there's always community. I think Jesus appeared to his brother, maybe personally, and maybe to Peter personally. I'm not sure when that was uh, in the whole story scheme. But really, most of these appearances take place in community because community is really fertile soil for, for growth. So here's a caveat. You will grow in community only if that community is a place of grace and supernatural. It can be a place of grace, and that's good. It can be a place of supernatural, and that's good. But ideal community has got to be a place of grace and supernatural at the same time. Because it's grace that allows you the openness to have God intervene in your life. It's the supernatural that allows you to realize God is powerful on my behalf. It's got to be those two together. And they had that in the upper room. They had that two times, once without Thomas, once with Thomas. It was grace and the supernatural both times. And Jesus, who is the Word of God, is ministering grace and supernatural to transform them into fearful disciples, into confident disciples. But it's got to take place in the context of community. So I, I just encourage you to move into communities where there's grace and the supernatural. You know, at our church, we're trying to set that up more and more intentionally. We have that at Celebrate Recovery. We have that in our healing prayer groups. We have that in other pockets in our church. We're trying to really tune this up so that grace and the supernatural function at high levels in our church. And then a third, a third takeaway is to enjoy resurrection life, it's crucial that you become a worshiper. Uh, Thomas did this. You know, Jesus shows up. He shows him his hands and his side. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. His response is worship. Mary sees Jesus outside of the empty tomb. And Mary says, Rabboni. She's worshiping. And then we see that uh, the man who was born blind, you know, in the very middle of the gospel, you know, it, it actually specifically says, uh, Jesus, I believe, and he, and he worshiped. So if you're going to enjoy resurrection, resurrection life, it's really important that you become not just an adequate worshiper or a good worshiper. It's important you become a great worshiper because really skilled worshipers can encounter the feeling of resurrection life because like, God loves to break through in worship. So you'll be worshiping, enjoying the presence of God that you don't feel. And then in the middle of that worship experience, the manifest presence of God that you do feel shows up, brings you joy, maybe tears, and transforms you in that moment. But good worshipers are people who encounter more of the manifest presence of God. So every time we go to Jerusalem, this is one of my highlights I want to go to that place. I want to go into that tomb. I want to visualize the dead body of Jesus. I want to visualize Jesus' eyes fluttering open, him, him standing up and walking out. And you can't envision Jesus walking out of that tomb and think he's got a scowl on his face. You can't envision walking out of that tomb and go, I'm so mad. They screwed me around big time. 
No, Jesus walks out, smile on his face, newness of life. And that's, that's where I want to be. Is that where you want to be? Newness of life. Newness of life. Well, you know, it's going to come as you become a really, really good worshiper, as you operate in community. It's going to come in those places. It's going to come, you know, as you learn how to enjoy and encounter his presence, even in your weakness, even in your weakness. In fact, one of the best times of worship is to take your weakness, say, God, I give it to you, and I worship you because you're gracious with my weakness, and you want to replace my weakness with strength. It's good when that happens. So with that in mind, let's, let's stand for our closing prayer.